And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go! I got nowhere else to go! I got nothing else. Bring us in, Tim. This this is uh, been your baby here. <laughs> yeah, I think I had Gene bring us in, or I had Kirk bring us in on the other show we did. Uh, I was just well, going to say, do we, should you have a new name for this then, right? Like mm-hmm. Burning the Bins or something like that. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. No, no, this is going to be a standard back to the bins. We are, it's not a, it's like assistant editors month. It's a, we are, it's not the normal back to the bins crew. This is really the third degree burn crew. And we are helping out Paul by giving him some, uh, just some feller shows. So I asked Brian and Nigel if they would like to, we get a chance to talk about something that's not burn. Uh, for once, which is kind of nice. So this is uh, Back to the Bins. Uh, we have Brian Hughes from Third Degree Burn. We have Nigel Spinks from Third Degree Burn. And I am Tim Elliott from Third Degree Burn. It's nice and to Spink, right? Spink. It is, yeah. Oh, not, did I not say Spinks? Not, not like the boxer, no. No, no. <laughs> no S. Uh, so no my S. apologies now. Spink. Okay. Um, and we will be covering three books. Just their standard format. We're doing a Marvel, the DC, and an independent. Uh, and I don't know who wants to go first. I don't think they have a. Well, I I got the independent. I'd like to like to go ahead and start off. Yeah. First, if you don't mind. No. Um, my book, the one I picked here, is uh, from First Comics, and it's John Sable Freelance, number sixteen. Now, let me ask you guys: Did you guys read any of John Sable before before this? Were you familiar with it at all? No, I wasn't. No. I I was familiar with the name of the book, and I had I had bought some first comics uh, when they were out in the eighties. So it was like one of those books I was familiar with, but I had not read. I had not read this issue. I hadn't read anything of John Sable. Well, I mean, I, I discovered it in college myself. I discovered Grell at a much younger age. Work uh, his work on Green Lantern, Green Arrow. And uh, uh, Legion of Superheroes, so I I, I recognize his work because he comes from that same school as, you know, he he's one of those guys that came after Neil Adams, and um, his artwork you know was a lot like what Neil Adams did, though he went in a decidedly different direction than say John Byrne, yeah, uh, where his has a much more hand sketched look than you know Byrne's clean lines, his is a bit more sketchy. And uh, his uh, anatomy is um, always a little, I guess you would say, thinner uh, than other guys. Anyway, let me go ahead and give you guys a particular on this particular book. Uh, This is, again, John Sable Freelance, number 16, published by First Comics. 
It's got a cover date of September 1984. The on sale date was May 21st, 1984. It had a cover price of $1. And that's a bit more than the books of the of the day. The books of the day, uh, Marvel and DC were about 60 cents uh, for an issue at this point in time. And uh, this, of course, was a dollar and it had 32 page count. And the story itself was 28 pages. So it is a full, full book. And I, I, I did some other digging to find out, you know, uh, what else had uh, Grell done that month, much like we do on our other show. We'll talk about that later, though. Um, is in, And really, when he started doing these books, he was writer, he was artist. Uh, so he did the pencils and inks. And so he didn't work on any other books at that time. He didn't put anything else out. So from the time that he pretty much started on John Sable Freelance, that was pretty much all he was doing. He wrapped up his writing chores on Warlord at DC and his uh, Star Slayer book that was also a first comic. But uh, this one here is um, titled uh, Return of the Cat. And like I said, uh, the writer-artist is Mike Grell. The letterer is Kenneth Bruzenak, colors Janice Cohen. The editor on this is Mike Gold, not Mike Golden, the, the artist that we know, but the editor, Mike Gold. Uh, and he did go to DC later to, I believe, edit Superman uh, for a while, but I could be wrong on that. Well, I think Mike Gold was one of the founders of First Comics, wasn't he? I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I think he was. That, that could be the case. Now, um, this story features a character known as Maggie the Cat, Lord uh, Lady Grey, uh, was it Lady uh, Margaret Grey Malkin? And she was in a previous issue, I believe it was uh, issue 10, where she had uh, actually flummoxed uh, Sable and she was able to uh, knock him out with some chlorohydrate and steal a very expensive uh, gem. Uh, the Capitolio, I believe it was called. And uh, so basically cost him about $100,000 and a little bit of, of uh, bad press. But uh, in this story, and uh, let me just go ahead and give you the synopsis right now. Uh, Maggie the Cat, jewel thief and former adversary of John Sable, approaches him to join her in a bit of industrial espionage. A secret formula has been stolen from one of the largest companies in the world – and the people that stole it are planning to auction it off to the, com the competitors. The thieves are actually a college professor and several, several of his students who devised the perfect crime in this endeavor. They're holding the formula along with many weapons and explosives on a fortified island in the Bahamas. Now Maggie has devised a way for her and John to get onto the island undetected. So she and John approach the island using scuba gear and stealth. They take out the outer guards without with uh, out the professor and the students noticing as they were inside gloating over how perfect their crime was. It was only when Maggie got to the safe that the students guarding it, that the student guarding it became aware of them and got thrown out of the window for his trouble. But not after firing a few rounds, alerting the professor and the remaining students of her and John's presence. John engages in a firefight with one of the students while Maggie attends to the safe. She blows the safe open with explosives, just as John blows a hole in one of the students with his gun. Maggie informs John and everyone else that the safe is empty, causing the last remaining student to turn on the professor who kept the formula on his own person. 
The professor shot the student dead before he could even raise his gun. He then throws a gas lantern onto the stockpile of weapons and explosives to cover his escape. John and Maggie have to jump out the, clo uh, the closest window to avoid the explosion and fall to the rocky surface below. They, however, land safely in the water, only for the professor to try and shoot them from a speedboat. John and Maggie swim under the surf, and John pulls out one of his special guns and shoots multiple rounds up through the boat and the professor, killing him in the process. Maggie retrieves the formula. Later, John has convinced Maggie that they should return the formula to the original company for the modest reward of $250,000 in lieu of auctioning it off for millions. While returning the secret formula to dun, 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 Coca-Cola, <laughs> John tells the executives that when the envelope got wet, he could see the formula and that it was nothing special. Executives smiled and told him that what was stolen was not important. It was the publicity that was most important here. The end. Now, I, I had to write that, and I was making it kind of swift and brief, as this show needs to be swift and brief. Um, all the other information I got from Mike's Amazing World, though. Well, this was a good synopsis, by the way. This was a quick read. It's it's a it's a full book. Yeah, but it, it, it It chugs along, and you can see his from the little, little research I did on Mike Grell. Uh, and I don't think I've read, I don't think I have anything that he has. I don't have any of his books. I know you're a big fan of his, mm -hmm. Ryan. And I know he's mostly, I don't think he's ever done anything for Marvel, has he? Um, yeah, I was looking over his, his list and I really didn't see um, any, any Marvel uh, at, at the quick glance. And I'm taking a look again. I mean, he did DC and Pacific comics, first comics um, eclipse eclipse did a, a John Sable series. If I remember right image, he worked for image and valiant. So he went to work for Jim shooter, just not at Marvel. Okay, and then, not Marvel. Oh no, no. And then in 2002, on the new Iron Man series, he did come in starting at issue 50 as the writer on Iron Man. And he did do some art on it later on, but he's always been more of a of a uh, DC guy. That's what I thought. Like then, Warlord and uh, Green Arrow were the two things I know he's most associated with in this as right. well, I guess. Right. Now, he did um, he did another John Sable uh, revival back in the 2005 for IDW is called uh, John Sable Freelance Blood Trail. And I have yet to read those. Um, I've got them. I just need to sit down and read those. I also need to read the Warlord comics that you bought me. Um, and then he actually did some work on X-Men Forever. Oh. And, yep. Well, this was a, well, it's, it's getting, Nigel, what'd you think? This is, you, I guess you said hadn't heard of it, so this is your first exposure to it. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'd never, I'd never heard of John Sable before. Uh, I've never really seen any Mike Grell artwork before either. So everything was sort of new to me on this one. Um, it was interesting. Yeah, uh, as you said, Tim, it it moved along mm -hmm. at quite a pace. Yeah, yeah. Um, I felt it dragged a little bit to begin with. Um, after I'd read the first few pages, I was thinking, oh, come on, you know, <laughs> the story didn't seem to be going anywhere. And they were just kind of flirting with one another, the yeah. two main characters. 
Uh, but when it got going, yeah, it, it moved along at a good pace. Yeah, uh, it reminded me of the sort of old stories from the late 60s and in the 70s that were on TV, such things like uh, Persuaders and Man in the Suitcase and those kind of mm -hmm. drama spy suspense kind of stories yeah it, it read like one of those yeah well he uh, said that uh gorilla said that his influence obviously his obvious influence is fleming this is yeah, guy is very james bond like james bond yeah yeah he did a, a james bond book um called permission to die which is probably the greatest jump uh, james bond movie that's never been made and I'd recommend anybody that would that loves James Bond go out and read that series. It's uh, it's very very good, and it's definitely in that same seventies genre of Bond. Yeah, well, this almost feels like it's a movie, a comic ad adaptation of a film because it's yeah. very cinematic. The way he's got his panels laid out, it's almost like this was a film, and then he's doing the comic version of it. Mm hmm. Mm. Yeah, yeah and, so. and and it was there are some certain points of the action that I had question about, like the first two guards they took out. Did they kill them, or did they just incapacitate them? Because it's like the, the, you know they get the one guy on the on the by the docks, and I you they, just I thought they killed him. It, yeah, it was, it was just, hard because you see his head go back, but it doesn't yeah. look like he was garroted. It was just something. Some just some for me. It was just something about the way he drew that guy's face. Yeah, yeah. In the picture where he's actually being, uh, I don't know. Maybe he was back. being stabbed. Yeah, it looked like it was the sort of face you see from somebody who's just being killed by a sneak attack. Yeah, and that's that's a surprise in this because you know I mean this is like industrial espionage. You just don't think of it being. Well, let's kill everybody, mm. you know. But I mean, it's definitely a thing because we know that these guys are are packed up with a lot of guns, a lot of explosives. Yeah. And, oh, Rosa, he's a he's a he's kind of a mercenary. He's kind of a gun for hire. So yeah, well, I mean, Sable, uh, you know, if you didn't know uh, anything about his character, he was actually uh, in Vietnam, and uh, while he was you know, working as a ranger, he was also writing. And then once he got out of the, the war, he went to um, the Olympics and participated in, I think it was the biathlon. Which one is it where you ride the horse and then also shoot? That's That, that, that was skiing and shooting. Skiing. There's, there's one that's got equestrian and yeah. shooting and fencing. And oh. um, he participated in that. He got the bronze medal. And this is in the 72 Olympics, of course, where the Israelis were attacked by the uh, uh, the terrorists. And uh, that's also where he met his future wife. Um, they got married in, the, in the, the, the mountains of Kenya. And then he became a white hunter uh, there in Africa, where he led parties on hunts out there. But very, very Hemingway uh, in his uh, presentation of the character. And then his family was uh, massacred by poachers. And he basically goes, you know, death wish on them. And so it's very much of a death wish Martin Riggs kind of character 
but with all this other background. And uh, so he's he's a, an enjoyable. It's always been an enjoyable read, but there's a, a, a sentimentality, a melancholy about him, while still having a sense of humor. He doesn't have that that anger all the time kind of thing that you see from other uh, Death Wish type characters. Yeah, he's not the Punisher, right? Yeah. No. Well, yeah. I think that's the Fleming influence with the is. The that kind of playful, but you were talking about Nigel at the beginning. They do take a long time to kind of get going, where it's just yeah. a lot of banter back and forth between yeah. uh, the cat and Sable, who are kind of flirting back and forth, and then a lot of exposition of him. You know, it, it, it felt Fleming to me. Him, he's talking about this special gun he has that will fire, yeah. you know, all kinds of different types of ammo. It's what he ultimately uses at the end to shoot the guy. Yeah. Um, this feels a little, uh, or at least the artwork, I felt a little bit like Chaken. Howard like Chaken, what? which I think. Howard Chaken, yeah. Yeah, yeah I can yeah. see that. Or mm-hmm. Klaus Janssen. It looks almost like it was rough pencils and it was most of the finishing was done with a brush or a pen. In it, or a, or a pen. doesn't look mm-hmm. quite like it. You know, it looks a little scratchy. But um, you can see that, that Neil Adams, um, maybe even a little bit of Dan Spiegel influence in it. You can see Neil Adams in the faces because the faces yeah. almost look like he's referencing real people. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I thought it was kind of, uh, and it's and it's not. It's just espionage. There's no supernatural. There's no superheroes. It's nothing. It's just uh, spy stuff. And I I'd heard that uh, Gene Simmons from Kiss bought the rights to this. I think in maybe the late eighties or nineties. They, 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 they made a TV show. series. Yeah, they, they, they yeah, did make a TV a series, and you can find it, I think, on YouTube. Um, there's a couple episodes out there. One of them was actually really, really good, but for the most part, it didn't get any traction. Yeah, and I mean, it's, a little bit. Yeah, and but they could they could do it today still. Um, just have to change some of the background, you know, facts. But uh, this it, it's. The, the the character sample is one that, that you know you you could plug into any century any any uh, decade, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you, you guys easily... think? What did you think of the reveal at the end that it was the formula for Coca Cola? I thought it was a little cheeky. But, <laughs> uh, uh, is that kind of typical of? I haven't read any more of these issues. Is that kind of typical of Grell's kind of writing, or? But, he did so many interesting things in here. The very first uh, Sable story was actually him saving Ronald Reagan from an assa- a sniper attempt. Um, also a really good, really good tale. And that's John Sable freelance number one. Um, and, you know, so he was very topical. So, you know, if you'll go back and you'll read these. You can say, OK, this is firmly in the 80s. Uh, and, of course, this is right this is 1984. This is right smack dab in the middle of the Cola Wars, you know. And this is when they they were they were secretly switching from cane sugar to the high fructose corn syrup, so they brought out New Coke. It was just right well, around I, right after. I wonder this. about this. Yeah, I, I'm looking that up. New Coke came out in '85. This is yeah. what '83. '84. This is '84. So very precedent. Yep. Yep. Anyway, uh, let's uh, go ahead and grade it, I guess. Okay. All right. Um, cover? What do y'all think? 
Do you, do you all want to do them one at a time, or is each of us just give our grades for everything? Um, uh, let's. I think we grade. Let's grade them. We'll each grade these as we do them. So you go ahead and give us your grade, and I'll. The night okay. Give his and. I really love the cover. Now we didn't talk about the cover before. It's got almost a handwritten note saying "Return of the Cat," and you see cat's paws marks across there, though they're really, really close together. Uh, the cover for me is, uh, what are we doing, 1 to 5 or 1 to 10 or what? It's uh, or a, letter grade. A, a, letter grades. Letter yeah, grades, okay. yeah. yeah. For, if you are someone that's been reading this book, it's an A. But, you know, for someone that, that hasn't read it, they, they don't know what Return of the Cat means, so it would be a B, just in presentation. Um, the story, uh, you know, it's... Uh, like you guys said, it takes a little bit to get going. And once it does, it reads a lot very Bondian, which uh, I like. Um, and uh, the the little bit at the end, figuring out what it is, that was that was kind of funny. I'll give this the story a B. And then the artwork, uh, about 90% of it, the artwork is just flawless. I do find sometimes his anatomy comes off a little too thin and gangly. Uh, so I'll also give the artwork a B. So overall, the books would be. Cool. Nigel, what do you think? Okay. Um, right. Well, starting with the cover. Now, as uh, Brian just said, I'm a reader who doesn't know anything about John Sable or anything like that going into it. So if this was on the stand in front of me, I probably would not have wanted to pick it up. <laughs> it doesn't look that interesting to me. Uh, and and as you said, as as a reader who's never seen it before, Return of the Cat doesn't mean anything to me, uh, unless it's Marvel's cat, which it's not. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't be tempted to, you know, oh, I, I wouldn't think, oh, I must buy that just for the cover. As you say, it, it's. Got a nice black background, which makes the cat paw marks stand out a little bit. But that's it. It's fairly simple. So for cover and sort of like the impression it would have on me, I'll say C plus for the cover. And the story, yeah, it's the, the typical kind of spy espionage type of story i i guess it's a it's a reasonable story so I, I give that a b the artwork again i've not seen mike girl's artwork much if at all before um i can see that yeah he draws he draws people in a similar way to how I feel about Don Heck's artwork, yeah? I can see he's a good artist. He's got a particular style which suits certain types of story. Uh, this type of story, of course, obviously being one that it does suit. I don't think he'd be so good with the, the superhero kind of thing. I don't know. I've never seen any Green Lantern drawn by Mike Grell. Uh, so it, it's fair. The artwork's fair. So I, I'd probably give that a B plus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So right. overall, yeah, probably yeah, a B. Overall a B. 
Okay. Yep. Well, I'm going to probably uh, mirror what most of you or both of you have said. Uh, I give the cover a B because it's not a bad cover, but to your point, Nigel, it's not, it wouldn't grab me. It's not intriguing if yeah. I wasn't familiar with John Sable. I mean, it looks like mm -hmm. an independent comic cover. Um, I think the story is uh, sta pretty standard spy stuff. I think it's nothing, it's, it's a little cheeky at the end, so let me give that a B. Uh, I think the artwork is, to your point, Brian, it's not, uh, the it's a consistency I found was sometimes his facial, his face is not quite consistent. Sometimes his faces look different for the same character. Um, so I give that a B minus. So I think overall it's got a, it's got a good solid B. So I think we're all kind of in agreement that it's, it's nothing super special, but it's a good solid book. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I'll tell you guys this for, for nothing. Um, when I hit, when he was working on the, the comics at first, none of the books ever went for code approval. So you won't see a comic code authority uh, seal on the book. And he would experiment with that as, as things went later, uh, where you'd see more and more nudity in the books where you, you don't really see nudity here. You see under boob and yeah. uh, half naked body, but um, you know, it, 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 he lets things get more, more pronounced as he went later on in the book. And this is one of the books that actually benefited from flexographic printing. Uh, so it got very, very bright and luscious colors on what he was working with there in the later books when you got into the forties. But uh, that's just my opinion. Um, but I've always been a, a good mark for his uh, his uh, writing and art in these books. Well, I think when first, I think they were launched in 81 or 80, maybe 83. And they were kind of the first that really brought creator-owned uh, properties. So that mm -hmm. he was, you know, he, was in, he created this, he was in charge of it. Yep. So they were probably getting a bigger share of the the royalties or whatever you know yeah, basically and, and, what images have created for much later yeah and just looking at this uh the inside the front page is a letters page and do it on the inside of the front cover they have a letter from james bond and they have yeah. a letter from tm maple <laughs> kind of give you an idea of uh some of the people and then um paul bishop editor of the thief taker journals i don't i, I don't think i've heard of that and it shows that, yeah, Mike Gold was the managing editor. Rick Obadiah was the publisher. Joe Staten was the art director. Yeah, I know Staten came on board. And Chaykin, I think uh, American Flag was on, came out yeah. of first as well. I believe so, yeah. Yeah. I believe so. Does he right, wear, so. he doesn't do it in this book, but does he wear that kind of weird mask when he's usually going out? The, uh, it's sometimes when he goes after criminals and they know they're that he's coming for them when he's going after certain types. When he did his first job, which he went after a, a, a child molester, and he caught the guy who wore the mask. So that when the press was interviewing him, he says, why do you wear the mask? And he goes, it scares the hell out of bad guys. Yeah. You know, he just kind of trying to get mask. his name out there. But that was how he made his name and uh, got out there. So he would put on that war paint. He actually uh, used the war paint when he was in Africa going after the people that killed his family, he made the war paint from the ashes oh, okay. of his burned, burned home. Um, yeah. 
Well, I, we should probably move on to the next book. Yeah, Nigel, but, uh, I'll uh, I'll let you go yeah. next because okay. um, yeah. this was an interesting book. Right. So, uh, well, just to give you a brief rundown on deciding on what to to cover um, with Marvel off the table, <laughs> that effectively kind of. Uh, took out about 90% of my collection. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, I opted for a DC book because that's really the only thing I, other, other thing I had in any decent numbers. Um, but of course, I'm not really a big DC reader either. Um, and so most of the DC that I had, I had because John Byrne was the artist. Um, <laughs> and for a while, I was going down that road. I thought, well, I know you said it doesn't have to be Byrne, but I thought it's, it looks like it's going to have to be Byrne. Um, but then I thought, no. Um, so the one I've chosen for two reasons, really, uh, because it's the first DC title that I ever read and collected on a regular basis. And uh, of course, because of the time, we're just, we're, just, uh, we're just into the next month from when we lost the legendary George Perez. It's just over a year yeah. since yeah. he passed away. So well, his thought, birthday was yesterday, wasn't it? I don't know about that, but I, he, he passed away in May, I believe. Yeah, was it the sixth of May? Yeah, it's just been uh, three years. so. It, it, it was it's just past a year, so I thought, well, it seems appropriate to take one of his books. And uh, so I have chosen DC's The New Teen Titans, Volume One. Uh, issue number 28. And his birthday was yesterday, June 9th. Right. So um, it's cover dated February 1983. And it was selling for 60 cents, uh, which was 20 pence in Britain. And just to give you a rundown of the, the production team. So cover art was by George Perez. The writer was Marv Wolfman. Penciler, again, George Perez. Inker, Romeo Tanghal. This was the first time I'd ever seen work done by him as well when I started reading this. And I, I liked his inking very much. It, it really suited George Perez's pencils, I thought. The colorist was Adrienne Roy. Letterer, John Costanza. Editor, Len Wein. And executive editor, Joe Orlando. That was the team putting it together. Now, the story, I'll just give you a synopsis, which I've taken mostly from the DC uh, database. Just added one or two extra sentences here and there for clarity. So, for the past several days, 
Changeling has been looking for a female called Terra, who has the power to control Earth and the very ground itself. He catches up with her this day as she leaves the bank with bags of cash. He offers to help her if she will stop these acts. But she tells him she must do this or her parents will be killed. Changeling attempts to stop her using his transforming powers, but terror tricks him and escapes. Elsewhere, on the Baltic island of Zandia, a church belonging to the cult of Brother Blood is attacked and destroyed by the Brotherhood of Evil. Unaware of all this, the other Titans carry on with their private lives. Dick Grayson, aka Robin, and Corey, aka Stargirl, sorry, Starfire, continue their romantic relationship. Donna, Wonder Girl meets her boyfriend's ex-wife and young daughter for the first time. And Wally, Kid Flash, tries to decide if he should quit the Titans in order to continue his college studies. At Central Park Zoo, Changeling tracks down Terra, manages to capture her, taking her to Titans Tower, where Kid Flash, Cyborg and Raven are on hand. After hearing how Terra has been forced to commit crimes by terrorists holding her parents, her father being the ruler of Markovia, the Titans decide to help her. So that night, a group of shady terrorists await the arrival of Terra at a subway train. But the Titans confront and subdue her tormentors one of which reveals that her parents have already been killed. This drives Terra into an angry frenzy and she controls the ground to form a giant hand with which to crush the terrorists to death. The Titans manage to persuade her not to kill them. The changeling befriends Terra in her grief. However, some of the other Titans are still unsure of her story. And Raven senses there is something else. Okay, so that's the basic plot. That's it's amazing it didn't take you longer because this is a this is a dense yeah. book. Yeah, I mean this is a dense book. But you, you know, it read it read like the the, the X Men of the same time period. Or, exactly. or shortly before the yeah. the, the Burn Claremont X Men, and and that's what the Titans was there to do. It was there to compete with the X Men. Yeah, uh, and that's why you know Marv Wolfman was like the right guy for it. He um, had come from Marvel, where he'd spent the, the last what twelve years doing all sorts of superhero books, uh, ending up on Fantastic Four and Spider Man before making the jump over to DC. And uh, getting getting this book, and of course with George Perez, who had also been for the most part up to that point a a Marvel guy, and so them coming over to DC and doing this book, you know, it was obvious what they were trying to do, and it's masterful. Yeah. The, well, as I say, that this is the first DC book that I ever collected on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So you know. 
I wasn't there right at the beginning. I was aware of it. Um, but of course, because it was DC and I wasn't reading any DC, I didn't look at it immediately. Um, I think the first issue I actually bought in the comic shop when I got round to it was, uh, I think it was either issue eight or nine. And then I quickly picked up the back issues that I could in, in the comic shop. And, uh, and I ordered it on a monthly basis from there on. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. I mean, they used to refer to it as uh, it's a Marvel book in a DC cover, <laughs> you know, with Wolfman and Perez coming from Marvel and with the work yeah. that they've done. It, yeah. it feels that way. This, yeah. <clears throat> this may Certainly, be the. Yeah. Sorry, go Sorry. On. Well, I said this may be the first titan book i've ever read i don't own any and i think i have the teen titans and the x-men crossover that oh, yeah. dc did i've got that one and i'm yeah. i'm aware of the titans i kind of know who they are because you can't be in comics without it and you, and you this is this is always brought up like you will you know uh claremont and burn on the x-men it's always perez and wolfman on the teen titans it's that if you're going to read you know and would you say this is Perez at his height of his talent, the way a lot of people think Byrne was when he was on uh, no, X-Men? I mean, I mean it, no. it, it, he, he was so good for so long, so consistent for so long. Now, he, he you know, took his time away from the big two and did, you know, some other other uh, company books. And he, you know, did his writing and other things, so you, you didn't get to see his art as much as you'd like to, especially on the big characters. Um, but, you know, when he did that second run of Avengers with uh, Kurt Busiek, you know, yeah. his style was so different from what you see here, and yet it contained the same detail. And, of course, part of that was that he didn't have Romeo Tangal doing the inks for him there. But, yeah. I, I mean, his his art has evolved but he never lost the detail. I think that if you want to say what was his zenith, you're going to have to look at Crisis on Infinite Earths, which is really right True. here in the same time. Um, you've got, uh, but you've got there, you've got uh, what uh, the, the the inker, same inker for um, uh, Jerry Ordway mm. did the inks on, of course, Crisis on Infinite Earths for most of it. And uh, I, I think, you know, that as well as Romeo Tangle, he compliments uh, Perez's art. Uh, excellent. But, no, this is this is really still it's it's an earlier uh, style of art. And you can see some things on it that are a little bit more cartoony than they were later. But that yeah. doesn't take away from it. It's still so, so enjoyable in the same way Burns early art is enjoyable. Yeah. And so, uh, I, I mean, you're not going to be able, I'll, I'll tell you right now, everything on this book is an A for me. I, I, I couldn't possibly give anything except maybe, um, you know, the, the, the coloring. You, you, mm -hmm. But even the coloring is, is pretty much spot on, except for a couple places where they don't uh, paint gar green, where it comes out white. All right. You know, beyond that, it, the it book just, is flawless. It is just, you know, perfect, perfect book. Yeah. Are you when you refer to Gar as being white instead of green, 
Do you mean in this story or just in something else? That... In this story, he, oh. he changes into what? a bunny and he's supposed to be green. It's on page 22. Bunny. Oh, yeah, there, there's, a, there's a scene where he's a, a rat or something and he's yellow or maybe he's white. He's not. Bottom right an... panel. Yeah. Mm, I can't find it. <laughs> I'm looking at the no, it's gopher he's at. trade at the moment. And oh, yeah, 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 you see, they've colored it correctly in here. The rabbit is green. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. Because uh, I, I, I've got the original issue, but I, I just found it easier to use this. And actually, yeah. because of this is like the, the trade reprint, the colors are actually more luxurious than in the original, I oh, think. I'm sure. It's very, I... very clear, and the colors really pop. Oh, there's the one with, yeah, there's like a little rabbit. Uh, no, not rabbit. There's like a little mousy thing on page two as it's leaping between the tree that she's bending over. But that's green here as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's yellow, yellow in mine. In this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's right. yellow in mine. I'm curious, so, they, so, yeah. um, if so they in that trade... Uh, let me see here real quick what issue it is. I want to say it's 36. Nope. 38. Yeah, issue 38, which is uh, Who is Donna Troy, which uh, I'll say right now is my single favorite comic book story ever, ever done. Um, above and beyond any other. But the first page is miscolored. Because it's supposed to be red as in, you know, sunset, and it came off being uh, colored uh, purple. And when he turns on his light, instead of it being a yellow light, it's blue. Uh, and I'm curious if in the trade they fix that. Um, just a second. Uh, well, I, uh, not only is this book dense in dialogue, the artwork yeah. is dense and it's a lot of nine panel or in some cases eight panel grid and he is filling everything i mean everything is filled up detail it's, just yeah, detail it's detail and almost to a point where i know this is going to sound sacrilegious but because I've, I've never i hate the fact that i'm not necessarily a, i'm not a perez fan I'm, i don't dislike him i just never written Ooh. enough of his stuff his stuff is almost too detailed to the point where it kind of loses a style. Everything's drawn accurately and very detailed, and the story is easy to follow, but I don't see a style coming through. I just see a well-drawn figures and action and like that. Mm -hmm. So I kind of maybe it changes as he or if I read more of him, I'd see more of it. But that's kind of the impression I got reading this book. Well, I, I think you're getting some of the Tangal influence, too. Um, and it comes through mostly on the faces yeah. where the faces don't have as much uh, detail to them. You know, the, the Dick Grayson's face or, or, or Donna's face, unless it's a close up, you lose those details. And they all I don't want to say they look doll like. But uh, yeah, they, they is is yeah, and he's got that. His favorite uh, position to look at most characters is looking up to the chin, and looking up the nose. And so um, you know, but that's one of those things that that changes as we go you know, later years, different inkers that's, and such. That's Gil Kane. He stole that from him. Yeah, 
but um, uh, yeah. you know, okay. I've got. I brought the. I've got my other. My next book, which has the Who is Donna Troy story in it. So, yeah. Brian, what, what were you saying about the first page? The first page. Is it purple, or did they did they make it actually look like normal sunset, where it was more of a red, reddish, it's, like in the last pages? Yeah, it's red. Uh, when he's he's like in the dark. Yeah, and there's, there's the blinds. And yeah. The outside the window, it's red. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so they they fixed and, that. Uh, yeah, at the bottom with the with the uh, the desk light was that the other one? The desk light. The desk light was blue in the, in the yeah, original print. It's yellow. It's yellow here. Yeah. yeah. So in this in the trade they fixed it. Yeah, fixed it. I thought, what about the cover? Uh, on the actual cover, you said something about. No, the cover's fine because the cover's so painted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's like a bluey, purpley. And I'll tell you guys right now, you don't have to have ever read a Titans book or, or, or anything else to read this and enjoy this story. This is a one-off story, and it is, in, in my opinion, the single finest comic book story ever written. Talking about the Donna Troy when you're referring to yeah, or this Donna, book? Donna or, Troy, okay. that's in Teen Titans, uh, New Teen Titans 38. Mm. Same team as the one that we just uh, went through. Well, I, I also thought, since we were talked about the uh, lack of a comic code in the John Sable, yeah. this one is a little, there are some scenes that are a little mature. We got side or, boob, we got under boob. You got side <laughs> boob, you got... Um, there's even some violence when the yeah the, the violence with the plasma yeah, guy or whatever he is basically melts somebody yeah, um, yeah. And, oh the the guy shooting the guys in the back those guys that guy, yeah, guy, the guy in the back. just shot in the back yeah that's yeah. pretty pretty uh pretty violent and the it's the scene with Dick Grayson and Corey Star Corey Star Starfire Star yeah. You know, obviously they're just they're he came over to go on a date and then the mm -hmm. Donna Troy left and she said, Oh, the place is yours, you know, and they're like, well, what are we gonna do? Wink wink. And then next <laughs> thing you see, he's got his shirt off. And you know, it's it's equivalent of Shatner pulling his pants down. Um then they, 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 fixing they, <laughs> this actually caused a big stir back in the day because they had one where Dick and Corey Basically, something happens, and both of them sit up in bed together, yeah. and basically showing that they were sleeping together. This this is you know more veiled, but you know what's happened here. Yeah, obviously, and, it's pretty obvious and, that this this is you know post them, you know having sex. Um, yeah. And then that middle panel, she's showing a lot of cleavage, and it's very. Uh, and then the the handing of. When Donna Troy goes and meets the guy she's dating, um, Terry, Terry, who they hint at that I don't know how old she's supposed to be. They hint that he's much older, uh, mm. and he's dating the white. Well, his ex-wife makes a comment. Look at the front cover again, the very top of the front cover, and the title reads "The New Teen Titans." So uh, are you, they all going to have to accept that they're all nineteen, except for Gar, who's sixteen? Okay. Well, I, I was asking that about Raven, because she's drawn like she's an adult woman. Is she supposed to be a, or is she an alien well, or something? 
if if you watch it from the very first issue, if you read it from the very first issue, her features are not so uh, pronounced. Her cheeks are not so sunken. And it, it's funny because even Perez said that it just happened naturally. He didn't do it intentionally. But as they went from the first issue up until uh, they got to the point where they had their ultimate battle with Trigon, her father, her features became so severe. She looked like Angelina Jolie when she turned 38. Um, yeah. Just, you know, the, the, the features just hardened and stiffened and, and got so severe. But when you see her in the first issue, her cheeks are full. Her hair is not so, you know, widow's peaked. Um, and, she, you know, she has a, the much younger presence. Now, in the TV series that was just on uh, Max or HBO Max, um, she started off as 13 years old and she's matured into um, 16 or 17. At this point, she looks like she's 25 or 35 and divorced, though. Yeah. Uh, now, the way they got her done up. Well, I think I'm this, pulling on my my knowledge from the cartoon, the teen Titans yeah. cartoon, where they all seem like they were 13, 14. And then it gets crazier because uh, this girl, Tara, <laughs> and if you know anything about her, they've got a scene with her and Deathstroke. <laughs> and you can tell that they've been lovers. And she's 16. Yeah, that's kind of pushing the boundaries there. Yeah, they had her sitting there in lingerie, smoking a cigarette, wearing some real trashy makeup. It was just, and and I mean, her character is this. This right here here is the beginning of action. The story begins all the way back in issue two, but it culminates about twelve issues from now with the Judas contract. Yeah, and yeah. and I mean, just a fantastic story. Um, mm -hmm. If you can sit down and just binge read all of these issues, I'd recommend it. I recommend it highly. There's stuff in there that you're, you're not going to be familiar with. There's history on Doom Patrol because Gar Logan was Beast mm -hmm. Boy in the Doom Patrol and basically the one to survive. Well, he mentions that in here that he changed his name and they're yeah. still calling him Beast yeah, Boy. Beast Boy. Yeah. 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 Well, not, not, to, not to spoil this, but doesn't this Tara or Terry turn out to be a like a Trojan horse, or she's she's oh, got some other thirty-five-year-old story? I think it's okay to spoil it. Yeah, she <laughs> and, and they did an animated movie too on it, the Judas Contract. So this leads into that. So she's part of that because I've I've never read that, but that's that's the just yeah. from you talking about it. Everybody else is like, that's the story you need to read. Yeah, and they don't hide it. They they let you know eventually here that she is there working for Deathstroke. She is going to betray the team uh, in an effort to kill them all. Well, do they have... I haven't watched the Teen Titans live action. Is Deathstroke in that series? Yes. Yes, he okay. is. But they've... They, they do some crazy, crazy stuff there. You're familiar with the character of Jericho? No, Jericho no. actually gets introduced during the Judas contract, and he becomes a member of the team. He's actually a mutant. First, yeah. uh, first character that DC said was a mutant. Mm. Um, he's the son of Deathstroke. Yeah, he's the son of Deathstroke. Mm. And what they do with him in the live-action series is so messed up. 
But uh, again, live live action series is worth watching. The second season to me was the best season of the three. They're only making three. Um, but uh, still, it was fun, and it's not a long series. I think it's only like eight episodes per season. Yeah, they're not very they're not very long. Yeah, and they've got some some good and interesting characters. Alan Richson is on there as uh, Hawk, with Mickey Kelly playing Dove, and wow. Um, like I've I've seen scenes from it or I've seen bits of it when we had yeah HBO. But okay, so is everybody giving this book an A? I well, I know we know what you're giving it. I I, yeah. I will I'll give mine, which is not going to be very much yeah. off yours. Um, I'm giving the cover an A, even though it is a little misleading because that fight doesn't happen because she doesn't fight like Robin is. You don't see him in costume at all. In yeah, this but book. that cover but, just says, "Oh my gosh, grab yeah. me!" It would, it yeah, would have you take it off the. Of the you're gonna buy. You're gonna buy that. Yeah. yeah. When you see it on the stand. <laughs> I'm, I'm giving the writing an A minus only, because I'm not familiar with with most of these characters. So, I was a little. I mean, I had no trouble following the story, but a lot of the references, like I don't understand that because I don't know as DC as well as I know Marvel. Um. Inside artwork is an A, and so overall, it's an A. Um, it is. I mean, whether whether you like Perez or not, this is some beautiful artwork, and it's so it is so dense. It is just. I mean, it took me a while to read this just because of the dialogue and the the soaking up all of the artwork as you're watching it, looking at it. Yeah. Well, for me, of course, it's an A. It's an A book. Yeah. Um, it's great, and I, I like, as you said before, it's so dense. There's a lot in it. Um, it's not just the story itself that's running with regard to terror. You've got these other subplot things going on as well that they're showing you. You know, you've got uh, Brother Blood's church there in Zandia. Which, if you've been reading the title before this, uh, they fairly recently had their first run-in with Brother Blood and this church. Then, of course, suddenly the Brotherhood is... Uh, they'd appeared earlier as well, about a year before, in another story connected to the Doom Patrol. Yeah, I'd heard they were villains for that group. But I didn't expect them to be back in this you know just like this they just drop this into the middle of the story and it's like ooh. <laughs> so things are things are developing there as well we've not seen the last of brother blood and now what are the brotherhood of evil up to and why are they attacking uh the church of brother blood so there's all these other little things for the reader to get into and start asking questions about, you know, what's happening, all the plot threads. Yeah. Didn't didn't the Brotherhood of Evil kill the Doom Patrol? Weren't they the ones responsible for them all dying? The original Doom Patrol? Was that not Madame Rogue and... Madame Rouge, I thought. Um, Is it Rouge? Sorry. Rouge, and yeah. A, and, a, and, a, and this guy was like a Nazi. I forgot his name. <laughs> They were like oh. a Nazi general working with her as well in the story. Yeah, I, 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 I could have been wrong on that because I just don't know that kind of history on them. I thought that Changeling seemed to be blaming her for the death of Doom Patrol. So that, yeah, okay. 
in that story. Yeah. He was I know there the, I know there are people screaming at their their <laughs> podcatchers right now. They're just going, Oh, you idiots. Okay. <laughs> but we're not. We're not. We just haven't read it. Well, I'm not a DC I'm not a DC encyclopedia like I am Marvel, so <laughs> I don't know my DC histories, no. Yeah, it's kind of always, and you don't have to be a, a fan of DC to enjoy the the issue. I thought it was, it no, was like no. the two of these have been brand new for me. Mm-hmm. And the one we're fixing to cover my book is I've got it ingrained in my brain because I've read it so many times. <laughs> yeah, but I, I would recommend for anybody that if they love the the Claremont and Byrne X Men, you're gonna love the Wolfman Perez Titans. Yeah, just pick them up from the first book and go on. The first actual story started off in DC Comics Presents twenty six. It was a little sixteen page insert that was in that, and that's made that book skyrocket in value now. Very very hard to get. The start of the uh, regular books, Jim Starlin run, mm. but um, but yeah, just I mean the the first uh, forty issues are New Teen Titans, and it becomes the the adventures of the. I think it was just called the Adventures of the of the Teen Titans, or they changed the title of the book when they started the Judas Contract, mm-hmm. and um, then then they started doing the uh, Baxter uh, format books that came out for one whole year, and then the reprints would show up in the uh, floppy books. And uh, but all those that were done by Wolfman and per- Perez are just golden. Mm-hmm. Well, so we move on to our final, which is my book, the Marvel book. And I picked Tales to Astonish number 90, and I'm just focusing on the Hulk story, not the Submariner story. So our writer is Stan Lee. Our artist is Gil Kane, both artist and uh, inker. I couldn't find any information on the colorist, so I don't know who that is. Uh, Our letter is Sam Rosen, and our editor is, again, Stan Lee. This was uh, had a cover date of April 1967 with a release date of January 10th, 1967. And it's only 10 pages because this was a split book. So <clears throat> first half of the book is Submariner. The second half is the Hulk until the Hulk got his own series later on. Uh, the story is called The Abomination. <clears throat> Sorry, let me clear my throat. The stranger decides that humanity no longer deserves to live, so he implants a hypnotic command into the Hulk's brain, leading him to seek out and destroy the world's weapons bases. The stranger leaves Earth and returns to the stars. The Hulk, meanwhile, arrives at a missile base but transforms back to Bruce Banner. Fortunately, Banner's mind is not controlled by the stranger's manipulations. He knows that he will turn back into the Hulk at some point, though, and decides that he must destroy himself or else risk becoming the stranger's instrument of destruction. He heads back towards Gamma Base. At the compound, General Ross dresses the troops and tells them that a spy has been committing acts of sabotage at the base and that he must be found at all costs. After the meeting, Gwen consults with Betty, who is worried about Bruce. Gwen reminds her that the only thing Bruce has ever done for her is break her heart. Later, a spy named Emil Bronsky, Blonsky disguises himself as an MP and finds the laboratory that houses the gamma ray machine. Bruce is inside the lab and has prepped the machine to blast him with a deadly dose of gamma rays. Theoretically, the concentrated gamma energy 
should be enough to kill even the Hulk. Major Talbot and some soldiers enter the room and grab Banner. They are unaware of Blonsky's presence. After Banner is dragged away, Blonsky decides to activate the machine. He has little idea of what its true nature is, but he quickly finds out as he is bathed in gamma radiation. The energy transforms Blonsky into a hideously green abomination. He destroys a gamma ray machine before it overloads his body with radiation. From the window of his holding cell, Banner sees the abomination trashing laboratory. Detention forces him to transform into the Hulk, and the two gamma-spawned powerhouses begin fighting. Due to the concentrated energy levels provided by the gamma ray projector, the abomination is actually stronger than the Hulk. He also has the added advantage of maintaining his intellect. The abomination clobbers the Hulk with repeated blows across the head until he falls under, falls over unconscious. Conscious. He then scoops up Betty and leaps away into the air. He continued. To be hulking, dude. To be hulking, yeah. Well, it's however, it's, uh, however you say that. Hulking, dude. Yeah. Well, it's, this is full of Stanley's. Uh, this is an heroic, hulkish handiwork by and he lists Stanley and Gilkane. This is where I got sugar lips. So I used to. I was wondering about that. That's right. Got it. Because he used to call him Gil Sugar Cane, and then this one he decided to call him Sugar Lips because he's Stan the Man and he's Gil uh, Sugar Lips Cane. But I had I had this in a pocketbook that had um, this story, the story that preceded it with uh, the boomerang. And then this leads into the high evolutionary story and the living lightning story. I think. So it covered maybe six or seven issues in it. And I have read that cover to cover. I, had, I don't know how many times I've read it. So when I wanted to pick a book, gonna one, I love the abomination. And I'm, I've always been a fan of Gil Kane, but I never really sought out his work just because it's Gil Kane. But as I get older, I'm becoming more and more, uh, appreciative of his artwork and I think the artwork in this is just it's just great I love the design of the abomination I think they should have followed it when they went to the film they should have followed this to the letter instead of kind of changing it the way they did they were but kind of adding on to it in She-Hulk they did they tried to like correct that. it they gave him the ears yeah they gave him the ears and um, he doesn't quite have the that he almost has like a scaly reptilian kind of look the way Kane has yeah. drawn him. Um, but I just thought it was, uh, and it's a quick minute, 10 pages, and it just chugs along. And you get a great fight scene. And the next issue has an even better fight scene between the Abomination and the Hulk. I bet. Well, hopefully the Hulk won that one. Um, <laughs> It's not often you see the Hulk lose a fight, but he's got to lose every now and then. Well, um, they n not the spoil the next, but he he does survive, and he comes up with a way of he somehow broadcasts something, and he draws in the abomination. The abomination can't help it, so he shows back up at the base with Betty, and the Hulk is zapping him, which is slowly zapping his strength. But then he becomes the Hulk and then smashes the machine and that ruins it. So it says that it, as the abomination was stronger, it 
drained his strength to where he was level with the Hulk. But of course, the Hulk has the advantage that when he gets madder, he gets stronger, which yeah, no, the other gamma and gamma spawn creatures seem to have that only the Hulk. But at rest, the Hulk is about um, what did they say? 80 tons, whereas yeah. abomination at rest is 100. He's class 100. But yeah. He does. Yeah, but he doesn't get any stronger, whereas the Hulk can, the Hulk can. continue to get stronger. Right. Yeah, I remember that. You know, I, I, it's funny because I, I'm a big fan of Gil Kane's artwork in the 70s and the 80s, the work he did on Spider-Man and other books. And then uh, when he went over to DC and worked on Superman, he was my not Kurt Swan guy in the, the, the later days of Kurt Swan's work on Superman. And so I really enjoyed, you know, a lot of his art there. I always found that he had just the best skills at drawing anatomy. Uh, than many of the artists of the day. So I was really impressed with that. And I, but I'd never gone back and looked at, at his older work. And, not, and not, only recently did I discover that he'd been working since the 40s. Yeah. And drawing. Of course, he did a lot of Westerns, Rex the Wonder Dog, and he did some Wildcat stories, which has my son intrigued because he's a fan of Wildcat all of a sudden. <laughs> but um, I, I found that this artwork for whatever made me think more of uh, Sal Basima, um in a lot of ways. Uh, the I way think the it's faces, the thinner the lines. Look, this has yeah, got a very thin, thin he inked it himself. It's got a very thin line to it. That might be why. Yeah. What? Uh, just my own curiosity. I don't think I've ever seen his Superman. What issues is he when he went to do Superman? I don't think I've ever. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, shoot you a couple examples, but. Um, okay. It's it's a lot different than his artwork here. It's you know how uh, Barry Windsor Smith's artwork kind of evolved and his artwork kind of evolved similarly, but um, it it's not as refined as Barry Windsor Smith, I'd say. Right. Well, Gil Kane was one of the when I first started reading comics. He was uh, other than like Kirk, obviously Kirby. I think mean, Kirby's everybody. I could Gil Kane was an artist I could recognize as Gil Kane. Mm -hmm. early on because he does have a kind of a style although it's more of a a uh, little more of a house style but we were talking about the up the nose shot that's very kill Kane, you know if you see yeah. that that's Gil Kane. um like his kirby crackle but and i i kind of regret i never i don't think he ever came to dallas or if he did i never went out of my way to meet him in any of the cons they were having so i never never got got to meet him Yeah, I never got to meet him. I did get to meet Julius Schwartz when when he came in. Um, oh wow, uh, I'm I'm trying to sit there and nail down uh, a couple issues for you. I mean, he did some Justice League, Justice League 200, Action Comics 553, 554. Um, but that's if DC Comics presents Annual 3, which is a Superman-Captain Marvel uh, crossover. But, uh, yeah, his his art is significantly different in those. And then the Sword of the Atom uh, miniseries, uh, where he basically took the Atom uh, in, into the, the Amazon jungle and made him more of a Tarzan-type character. Weird. Well, he started yeah. out doing, because I know he started out, he did the early... Green Lantern. 
he kind of was yes. doing. Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, he also did Green Lantern in the Action Comics Weekly when that first you know came out. So starting at six oh one. Yeah. Well, Nigel, would you? Uh, are you a Gil Kane fan? Um. Yes and no. Um. <laughs> I, I sometimes. Some of the stuff that he's done, I, I like, as you were saying, um, in Spider-Man, for example, um, I, I enjoyed that artwork. That, that was good. Uh, and he's done lots and lots and lots of covers, of course. He's like, he's, I kind of regard him as the cover man. Yeah. At Marvel, he does loads of covers, and most of those are, are pretty good. And you can all, yeah, you can tell he's he's got a distinctive style. You can always spot a Hill King cover more often than not. Um, this particular story, did you say this was the uh, like 67, 68, something like it's 67. that? 67. 67, yeah. Um, I, I don't like some of his faces in this particular story story when he was doing the Hulk he had some strange faces from time to time I mean like there's there's one of Major Major Talbot no 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 not Talbot Uh, Thunderbolt Ross on page 8 the bottom left hand panel where there's Ross and Talbot and Betty kind of looking looking at them fighting and and Thunderbolt Ross's face is just horrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can see his that. Eyes like really, his eyes are like really <laughs> popping out, but yet they're too close together. And then he's got the cigar in his mouth, and he looks really sort of comical. He looks like something from a kid's sort of comic strip rather than <laughs> a general. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I remember this story. I read it a long time ago as well. Actually, when you first sent the details through about which one you'd chosen and you just said, like, Tales to Astonish 90, I thought, ooh, now then, have I got that? Uh, then, uh, So I looked it up, and then when I started reading the synopsis for it, I thought, oh, yeah, it's it's the abomination one. <laughs> it's the one where, the, where Blonsky becomes abomination. So... I've got I've got it in the bring on the bad guys, you, you know. The, oh yeah, oh yeah. Mm. Yeah, so I, that's that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at it in the bring on the bad guys. Yeah. So I've got the colours and everything. Yeah. Yeah, his artworks, it's okay. Yeah, it's use it's reasonably good most times. Yeah. Yeah, he's a say. solid workmanlike yeah. artist. He's not. Mm. A superstar, but he never does anything that looks like he's just kind of phoning it in. Or... I think maybe, like you say, you're not sure who did he ink it himself. This one, he or... did. He is the yeah. anchor. Yeah. In that case, then I think maybe depending on the inker, his artwork looks either better or or not so good. Um, because I think in the Spider-Man stories where he was doing the artwork. 
was it Ramita was inking some of those. Could have been it? Ramita. Well, well Ramita yeah. was art director at the time, so he was touching up anything and everything. And so, of course, Ramita gave it the finish that perhaps made the difference between good and excellent. Yeah. 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 And, of course, Ramita used to change faces too, didn't he? He used to be called in to change the faces when they didn't like the faces of different characters. So, again... He could have touched up things that he didn't think were quite, or that the editors didn't think were quite right. Yeah. Whereas here, it's, it's Gil Kane himself. Let's say, yeah, overall, it's good. Yeah, it's yeah. Good, good artwork. Let's say it's just sometimes the faces of the characters are a bit strange, <laughs> strange but I, the more that i'm looking at this brian that you said salpicina i'm seeing more of that in here some of yeah. his later work when he was yeah. doing uh like that uh hulk annual that burn wrote and salpicina drew yeah or this spectacular spider-man run he right. had in those later, later years. on yeah because yeah. mm-hmm. i think he was probably inking himself on that but and I, i'll be the first to admit that a lot of this is colored by nostalgia for me because I had this pocketbook long before I even got into comics. So yeah. a lot of this, I it's going to be really, it's real hard for me to uh, objectively look at this because I've, it's such a part of my childhood that it's hard for me to separate that. Yeah. So. yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, this, I read this way back as well. And, as I say, when I found out which one it was, it was like, oh, great, it's the abomination yeah. story. <laughs> I know that, yeah, that, yeah. So, okay, bring it on, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Nigel, now, I, w- I kind of wanted to ask, and we were talking about meeting people. Uh, you growing up in the UK, did they have comic conventions? Did they, any of the um, no, American no. artists or anything come over there? You get to meet any of them? No. Uh, I mean, they did start having them eventually. Uh, but, I mean, when I was younger, no, I don't recall anything like that. Mm. Uh, it might have been the 80s before they started to have comic conventions where they'd actually have guests from America as well. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So, you know, all these people were just famous names you know to us yeah i've always thought that i sometimes when you guys are talking about these artists and and writers you just talk about them as if they're your next door neighbor yeah <laughs> sometimes yeah oh yeah him and you know oh yeah i've met him and yeah and, and to to me they're like they're, they're kind of like a higher level than ordinary people you know uh, i kind of see them in the same way that i see top movie stars and, yeah i and, could see that top pop stars you know like well you know I, i'll never see this person i'll never meet this person uh you know it must be nice to be able to go to like a comic convention and just see these people and talk with them like you would talk to anybody <laughs> yeah uh yeah, because to me they're kind of larger than life people who I'll never yeah. meet, and these are the well, guys who are actually yeah, yeah and it just all this stuff. Yeah, and in the eighties when I was kind of going to conventions and 
probably when Brian was, it wasn't as crazy as it is now. They were very approachable. They'd just be at a table. Mm-hmm. You could, mm-hmm. you know, go up there and maybe spend some time talking to them. Um, yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I, I think when I saw, first time I saw Stanley came to Dallas at Dallas Fantasy Fair or Fantasy Festival, and it was when he was there with Kirby. They weren't in the same room, but Stan had his own mm-hmm. room. And Kirby was just in the main hall with everybody else. Kirby was, this is Jack Kirby. And he was just yeah. at a table with everybody else. Getting, you know, I had a long line. And, but it's like, no, this guy should have his own room. Yeah. Like Stan did. So you could, uh, you know, and they, don't, they didn't talk. They wouldn't ever get up and talk. They would just, they were there to kind of sign autographs. Yeah. 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 I didn't, I, did, I kind of got used to meeting I classed as famous people a little bit more when I started doing uh, Trek conventions mm-hmm. because that I, I in the 90s I was into the Trek into Star Trek big and uh, they were having conventions in Britain too and they had the actors over so I met I met a few of the Star Trek actors well sometimes uh, one of the guys we we podcast it's on our podcast lives in um sam's andy Leyland, and he lives north england i think right. close to That's... liverpool you know right. you listen to the show you know who andy is i i know uh, him yeah. I, yeah I didn't know whether he still lived in britain or whether he was in america yeah he's still as far as i know he's still in britain he was right. here visiting he was here yeah. on vacation recently he was on, so he was on uh, florida but he had posted a picture of him a couple, couple weeks ago him and peter davison from Doctor Who, and yeah. I said, "Is this current?" He goes, "Yeah." He has. He was just in a little little con, like literally five minutes from my house, mm. and you know, that's the kind of thing you could do over there. You would meet more, uh, maybe British centric uh, mm. actors mm. or things like that. But yeah, uh, isn't um, don't they have a big convention in England called Word Balloon? Or something like that. Am I? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember. I thought that that was a kind of a. Um, you know what I noticed while you guys are talking? There's a letter in this issue from Bill Mantlo. Oh. And it gives his home address. <laughs> He's in Queens, on Murdoch Avenue. <laughs> oh, God. I'm sure he's not living there anymore. Probably not. I think he's in special care, actually. Um, All right. I well, you, uh, there. Like, yeah. you want no, me to go no. and give my grades? Yeah. Um, uh, did yeah, I'll, did I'll, Nigel give his, his grades? Well, I don't think we nobody's officially graded this. I, uh, I'll, I'll run down mine real quick because mine are going to be pretty simple. Mine are uh, the cover, and I'm not going by the cover of the issue because that's Submarine. I'm going by the splash page for this story. So I give that an A. Um, I think the writing's an A. Uh, artwork, I'm giving an A plus just because, again, that's rose-colored glasses looking at it. Uh, so overall, <laughs> I'm giving it it's, it's just a solid A. It's just, I love this story. Mm. Mm. Uh, for me, that, so the splash page, oh, yeah, I, I give the splash page a B plus. It's a nice hulking action type of picture here, yeah, ripping the bridge cable apart and 
Yeah, I give that a B plus. The story. <laughs> I guess it's the it's the first part of. Uh, I give the story a, a B plus also, and the artwork is a solid B. So yeah, I'd grade it B plus. Okay, well, uh, let's see the cover the the, well, the splash page. Uh, I really like that. It's got kind of an almost Neil Adamsy look to it, I guess, because the way the letters for Scrack yeah. come Coming out of it. You. So I, I do like that a lot. Um, I, I, I'm still going to give it a B because I, 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 I just, you know, the bridge itself is not. Um, I, I kind of expected the bridge to look different, you know, just the way with with what he's doing there. And I, I don't want to delve in any, any more of that because it's unfair to, to go as deep as I'm, I'm thinking about. But I'll, I'll just give it a B. Um, the the story is actually for this short of a story. The the dialogue and everything is dense. And the thing is, it's, it's something so easy to follow along, especially Blonsky's uh, travel in there and you know everything he does behind the scenes. Uh, so I, I, I give this story a, 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 a minus really. Um, and then the art, I'm going to actually give the art a C and just, just straight C it is good. It's serviceable. It's what you should at least expect of a comic book story, but the, the, the art still is not, you know, what I, what I would expect to see from Gil Kane normally myself. Um, and you know, based on what I'm what I'm accustomed to, what I'm used to. Um, but, but all that being said, the book is is a is a solid uh, B B minus. That's fair. And now you know, uh, again, I, I I can't. It's hard for me to, to judge it objectively um, because of the way I feel about it. But I mean, see, it, now I have to go and read that read the follow up. So follow up. The follow up is pretty good. Yeah. It's, well, it's got that, Damn you, that Tim. it's got that silver age flavor to yeah. it. It's just a, a cracking good story. Yeah. Yeah. I've got the whole thing because actually I read through it all and then realized, oh wait a minute, you know, the second half that would be yeah, no, I, on this ninety one. So yeah. I only have to go as far as where he where the abomination takes off with Betty and that's it. Yeah. Well you know this this surprised me like have y'all seen uh, the new Spider-Verse movie? No. I have not. <laughs> there is one major surprise that you should know going in. It's it's not a spoiler, I don't think. I think everybody should know going in about this. <sighs> There's going to be a part three. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yes, I'd, I'd heard that. I that. It's kind of a... Yeah, I didn't a, know that. I'm sitting there and we're watching the movie and I have to go to the bathroom really, really bad. And I'm going, this is really good, but I really need to go to the bathroom. And I say, and based on what's going on, there's got to be at least another 20 minutes. And then all of a sudden, to be continued. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what? Yeah, I'd heard it was... Uh, yeah, you were one of those people who groaned then. Yeah, because <laughs> I was listening. I listened to the Amazing Spider Talk podcast and they've just been reviewing it. Uh, and uh, 
that's what the, the guys on there were saying that a lot of people who went to see it didn't know it was going to be to be continued and so at the end of the film they were all gasping and going well what, what? <laughs> Uh, yeah, so. Well, I had a, when uh, the Lord of the Rings films came out, I, there was a guy I worked with that he went to see the first uh, Fellowship of the Rings and he was really ticked off at the end. Like, wait a minute, this is not one, I got to keep, I got to watch more of these? It's like, <laughs> he wasn't aware that it was based on a book. I, I, can, I can tell oh. you even worse. Uh, before my wife and I met, and she met this guy at her job and they started dating and it was her birthday. And he goes, I'm going to take you out to the movies for your birthday. And he took her to see the two towers. Now she had never seen the first one. <laughs> wow. But he really wanted to see the movie so bad. He just thought that she would like it without, and she wound up, you know, of course, just not knowing what was going on, not knowing who anybody was. She hated it, you know, just because of that. Wow. Now I've since, you know, gotten her from the very beginning and gave her all the history and she loves those movies and she owns all of them now, including all the hobbits and she's watched all of the new, new uh, series. So, I mean, she's all into it now, but that, yeah, that was horrible. <laughs> well this was right. fun that, yeah that it was a lot of fun john Byrne at all um well yeah it's a it's kind of a it's nice to talk about like i said it's something it's not burn and just to kind of pick more favorites whether they're yeah. sentimental favorites now, or just something you want to talk about i don't mm -hmm. remember who do people write to when they want to write them feedback because they, they need to send a feedback to them letting them know how we did correct uh I don't know. It's uh, <laughs> well, they have they back to the bins put, is on it'll Facebook. Be on the end tag. It'll be on yeah. the end tag. Yeah, or I'll put it. I'll put it. Yeah, Paul will put it, and I won't be edit. I'll edit this, but Paul will post this, so yeah. I won't be. I, won't, I don't know when this is going to come out, but um, yeah, I want to. I want to thank both of you for coming on. This is a lot of fun, Nigel. It's always uh, a pleasure to have you on. Um, and you will you will see more of Nigel hear more of Nigel on third degree burn. Uh, obviously right. we'll see, uh, you will hear Brian and I there and John and Kirk and David on our regular show. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's it. I, but, uh, again, I want to thank you guys both for coming on and, yeah, but, but, um, Nigel, is there a place people can find you on the web if they want to look to you through social media or do you, would you just like them to email you or anything? Well, uh, yeah, as I say, I'm on I'm on Facebook uh, in the uh, in the Marvel in the 80s uh, Facebook page, and also they can get me through the Third Degree Burn uh, Facebook page. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, the yeah, uh, email, but uh, I'm not on a lot of other social media stuff. But that, that's good. I mean, that, that gives them a place to be able to, to reach out to you if they want to. And obviously, um, Tim and I are also on the Third Degree Burn Facebook page. And if anybody wants to write Third Degree Burn, they can reach us at gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Um, so we're easy to find there. We put out uh, shows uh, 
every couple of weeks. It's not a set schedule like Back to the Bins here that's on a weekly basis. And we record our shows pretty close to posting time, usually within about about a week of when we've recorded it. Um, And we're we're mixing things up a little bit here. So not every show is going to have every member on there. And we're going to bring in some people and have some fun. So uh, uh, checking out all sorts of different things. Coming up should be... My son and I doing the many deaths of the Batman. So uh, look forward to that. Get, yep, get ready for that. Uh, anybody got anything else they want to say? No. Again, I just want to thank both of you. Uh, I want to thank Paul for giving us this opportunity to uh, kind of do a fill-in show for him. Um, so I guess for back to the bins, uh, I'm Tim Elliott. I'm Brian Hughes. And I'm Nigel Spink. Good night, good luck, and have a pleasant tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks. And we'll see you next week.